Live from the Jacob Media Studios, it's Serving Our Nation with Dr. Paul McCullough on News Talk 1400 WOND. Be inspired, learn and understand the power of becoming a servant leader and transform your life while serving our nation. Meet those who have served our country. Learn about prosperity and overcome sickness, poverty and despair. Serving Our Nation begins right now. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 56 of Serving Our Nation. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and if today is your first time tuning into the program, I just want to briefly share with you the heart behind Serving Our Nation. This is a program that is dedicated to helping people become servant leaders. And my goal is to offer you hope and encouragement through stories each week of people that live their lives by this principle of servant leadership and honoring God. Because what I've known to be true and what I see week after week in all the different guests that have come on this program is that when you lead a life of servant leadership, blessings will follow. And it's just a natural byproduct of that service. Because all of us are ministers of one kind or another simply because we are imbued with very special gifts by the Creator, by God. And because of those gifts, it is our obligation and our responsibility that when we see a need in the world around us, we should be filling that need to the very best of our ability. And it does not matter what your occupation is or what walk of life you are in, because serving is for everyone. Whether you're a military leader, a business leader, a CEO, a leader in your faith, a community leader, or even something as simple as a leader in your family, you have the ability and the privilege to serve other people. And last week in episode 55, I had the great opportunity to talk to Mr. Tim Brooks or Detective Tim Brooks, and he had such a powerful story. And he was very, very humble in his recounting of the things that he's done in his very long career and especially the acts of heroism that he did but what i think was most compelling about his overall story is that he is a policeman he's a detective he's a firefighter and everything that he does was towards the end goal of helping the people of philadelphia sleep softly he's out there on the front lines each and every day putting his life on the line in a multitude of ways so that the people of Philadelphia can sleep softly. Listen, if you didn't hear that episode, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to what he has today because it will touch your heart. But for today, I want to tell you just a little bit about me that's relevant to the show. As you know, I'm a minister and I've had my credentials for a couple of years now. And I also have the great opportunity to be friends with Mr. Joe Griffey. So he is the guy that helped me get introduced to radio. And he is also the host of the Welcome Home Show. His program is on on Saturday afternoons at 2 p.m. Really encourage you to listen to that. And through Mr. Joe Griffey's, I got introduced to another minister, a Reverend Bill McDonald. And so Reverend Bill McDonald is an author. He's a veteran. He's a chaplain. And he's a spiritual warrior. So if you are not familiar with Reverend Bill McDonald, he is going to be talking to us today. So when we come back from the break, I'll be joined by Reverend Bill McDonald. Stay with us. We'll be right back. listening to Serving Our Nation with Dr. Paul McCullough, a Jacob Media Production. And welcome back to Serving Our Nation. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough, and I'm joined here today by Reverend Bill McDonald. Reverend Bill, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here with me on the program today. 
trust me, there's nothing else in the entire world I'd rather do than be on the show with you today. That is very kind. <laughs> <laughs> it's my honor. Thank you. Well, listen, like looking at your background, I was looking through uh, your website and very, very robust and it's a very powerful story. But looking at the whole picture, it seems like a lot of your journey started in the military and your time in the army. So would, would you mind telling us a little bit about that journey and how you get into the army and what that process was like for you? Well, believe it or not, it was hard for me to get into the army. Really? In the 1960s? Come on! <laughs> take so I, I, I go down and, and, I, and I tried to join I tried to join the Marines. I like the uniform. That's cool. I got to be that, right? Sure. I got to raise the flying out of the mountain. Uh, nap 4F. Yeah, you're not physically good enough. Because I was in the hospital as a kid for a year. They had lungs, kidneys, all kinds of stuff, right? So they thought I was trying to scam them. Okay. So I, I go, well, I'll try the Air Force. Okay, you know, 4F. Then I tried the Navy. Ah, anybody take, Navy will take anybody. <laughs> so I go, I tried the Army. Hey, man, come on. It's, you know, it's like getting drafted, right? So I go to the Army. No. Uh, couldn't get in nothing. So I had a connection in San Francisco and I ended up joining the Merchant Marine. They have, we'll take it. We don't care. Right. So, and I got all the overseas shots. There's like a dozen of them. And I was going to ship to Vietnam okay. with the Merchant Marine. And they go, oh, because your age, you know, you're draft eligible. You got to go to your, your draft board and get permission to sail out on this voyage. Okay, I mean, I've just failed the physical. I got no problem. I go down there and they go, you report tomorrow at 4.30 a.m. San Jose. Get on a bus. You're going down to Oakland Army Base and get an induction physical. I go, really? Yeah, we got to give you a physical because you're going to be out of country. I go down and those suckers volunteered me for the voluntary draft. I take the physical with the same medical doctors at the same place that failed me five times and... I pass. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, you can't draft me. I'm joining for another year. So I signed up for three. So that shows you how smart I was. Anyway, that's how I got <laughs> in the army. So it, it wasn't as easy as it looked. I mean, I was going to go. I wanted to serve my country. I mean, everybody was trying to get out of it, right? You know, and I'm going, here I am. Please take me. And it was like everything I told them when I was trying to join, they thought I was trying to scam for a pension or something. Yeah. Right? And and everything I told them was the same exact truth. When they were drafting me, they thought I was cheating and I was trying to get out of it. So who knows? Anyway, so I went in the Army, and this was uh, 1965, November. It was just starting the big buildups and everything. Yeah. And uh, I, I was talked into, hey, kid, don't want to go infantry. Uh, there's no jobs. You become a helicopter mechanic, jobs everywhere. Really? For Huey helicopters? Jobs everywhere. Jobs everywhere. Okay. So I joined up. I become a mechanic and then I'm down at Fort Rucker and they're sending me to a, a tower with a machine gun. And I go, well, what's this guy to do with fixing a helicopter? <laughs> well, if you're flying around in your toolbox, you need a machine gun. Anyway, mm -hmm. I became a crew chief door gunner and I served with the uh, 128th Assault Helicopter Company out of Fuloy, which if you look at a map, it's right next to the Iron Triangle. Hobo Woods, the Third Corps area, not too far from uh, Coochie and all that stuff on the other side of the river. Okay. And uh, I, I got there. It's going old. Want to do my thing. But it was interesting. All kinds of strange, I have to use the word supernatural because I don't know how to explain. Things happened. It was, it was like... My journey was, I haven't met anybody with a journey just like mine. It's, it's odd. Uh, but I knew who was going to crash, who was going to get killed, who was going to get wounded, uh, what was going to happen. It was like, always had intuition. Mm -hmm. But at this particular time of my life, where it's life and death type stuff, that was sense was just totally tuned in. Uh, and, and then... The divine was taking care of me as well. For example, I was flying around Vietnam for, I don't know, six months or so. And, and in fact, this is April, right? On April 15th, April 14th, 1967, just before tax day, 
I was shot down and wounded and crashed in the uh, in the Iron Triangle area. And uh, I, I remember that because tax day, every time tax, oh, tax day is like going to war, right? Sure. So anyway, but on that particular day, I was wearing a ceramic vest that somebody made me wear. Nobody wanted to wear this thing because it was like 20 pounds and mm-hmm. 20 pounds at the back. And uh, <laughs> we were wearing flak vests. But stop, if you've been in the military, anybody's been in the Flak vest doesn't stop nothing. Doesn't even really stop flak, really, mm-hmm. unless it's coming from a long distance. Yeah, maybe shrapnel at best. At, at best, yeah. at best, if it's losing a lot of power. Yeah, close up. So, three days before I got shot down, the sergeant major or somebody came by and said, "Hey, McDonald, you come here, here, wear this, test it for us." I had the only one in the entire company. Wow. I'm going, really? I said, and I'm going, wow, that's strange. You know, I, I, I got a feeling, I go, why after all this time, I'm, I'm going to get this thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, there's a reason, you know, God speaking, something's happening. I'm getting this gift. Don't turn it down, wear it, right? So, well, actually, my gunner had one too. They, they had two. So we were the, we only, got, only team that had them. So he's on the other side, and we both took out the the ceramic plate in the back because it was just god awful heavy and it's like a hundred degrees and high humidity and sure you're sitting down and you got this so we slid it underneath our canvas seats on the helicopter thinking round coming up we're gonna stop something from going in the spine or sure. butt or some other fragile place and uh so he didn't have anything on the back i didn't have anything on the back so we're command and control helicopter flying over this battle where there's estimated 500 North Vietnamese uh, regular army coming down to the Ho Chi Minh Trail and they're joined up with uh, who knows how many uh, local, you know, the, the VC, Viet Cong. Mm-hmm. This battle was hand-to-hand. It was really getting bad down there. And they had nine helicopters bringing in Arvin Rangers and stuff and Almost every one of them, in fact, maybe all of them got some, took a couple rounds and they all left. It was, they're not coming anymore. It's too dangerous, right? But we're in the, the command and control helicopter flying, I don't know, several hundred feet up above the battle watching all this. Yeah. And we got the commanders for the ground troops there. And so we get orders. Hey, those guys are going to be on the ground to, to lead these guys, right? So we're coming in and, and we're approaching and we're the only helicopter in the sky. And I hear this. My radio guy goes, uh, all right, going in there, do not fire your weapons because there's they're not sure where the boundaries at between the good guys and the bad guys. So sure. don't fire your weapons. That's an order. So I'm going down here and the whole sky's lit up. It's like somebody turned on a shower, you know, and, and, and there's the white tracers and then there's red tracers mm-hmm. and green tracers. It was really weird. But don't fire your weapon. Don't fire my weapon. So I'm sitting there behind this weapon and all this stuff is going. Oh my gosh. And in a helicopter, it's got that, you know, aluminum can type feel to it. Yeah. You know, round hits it, it makes that little ping, right. ping, ping, ping. All of a sudden I hear this ping, 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 ping. You know, the tail's got holes in it. You know, but it's a Huey, man. It's, it, it takes it. So I get down and we land very quickly. The landing was quick, but coming down, we were floating in, and it felt like it was forever. Yeah. Nobody was shooting at anybody at the ground. Everybody was shooting at us. It was just, whoosh. it looked like one of those World Two movies where the Germans are firing all the flak. I mean, it was just <laughs> rounds coming up. It was exciting. Anyway, <laughs> well, something to write home about. So uh, get on the ground, and one of the ground commanders, this Vietnamese ranger officer, he was a an agent for apparently for the VC. <laughs> he, he was he, he was a double agent, right? So he gets on the ground. He doesn't think anybody's looking. He steps about 10 feet away from the helicopter. I mean, literally about 10 feet. And he got a, I don't know if he had a uh, AK-47. I don't know if he had an M-16. It was an automatic weapon. Every time I tell the story, I can't remember the weapon, but it was, it was definitely automatic. It had like about 18 rounds in the clip. Mm-hmm. And a guy just... I turn around, I see his eyes, and he's pointing this weapon right at my heart, right? Wow. He's going, and I just see this flash of light, a burst. He, he sends off 18 rounds 
empties the clip. And I get hit, the first round hits me right in the heart on this chest protector. Ceramics blow up. There's fire and smoke coming out of there because it was a tracer round. Apparently yeah, or something. Yeah. So there was smoke and fire coming out of it. And of course, it hit me against the, the wall, the helicopter. You know, Contrary to what you see in the movies, you get even if you got a chest protector, you, yeah, I got a bulletproof vest. You hurt. <laughs> you feel it. It's like a mule just kicked you, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm going to pull that in the morning, right? So I'm, I'm against the wall. And then the the cord that went to my mic in the helmet, you know, where I, hear, I was listening to all the, all the talk, you know, 775, right, right. blah, blah, all that stuff, right? All of a sudden, it's dead silence. <laughs> and I just got this. I looked down at my chest and I just see smoke. Mm. And I'm going, and, and and then we're pulling up and I look around because I'm a crew chief, right? And I'm looking around. First off, I think, first thing I'm checking, am I dead? Yeah, smoke is better than blood. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking for blood. There's no blood. Because I saw stuff rolling out, out of the helicopter. And I thought it, at first it was in my blood. And then it, I, I, re- I look around and goes, there's uh, hydraulic connections that have been shot. There's oil. There's all kinds of fluids leaking yeah. in. We're yeah. orange fluids. So we go up. About the distance of one football field, to kind of give it an idea. Mm-hmm. It was like you were in one end zone, look at the other end zone. Mm-hmm. And the battle's going on in the other end zone, and we crash in the visiting team's end zone, right? There we are, right? <laughs> and uh, well, I should crash is a hard word. We made what we called unscheduled landing mm-hmm. in the jungle, and, uh, and it had a little kind of a clearing, but we bounced around and everything, and this thing is smoking like it's going to blow up and everything. And, and so I check, I'm okay, so I get out. And you have to have, help the uh, the pilots out because they have these steel, I don't know, lead, I don't know what, heavy metal uh, shield protectors that, that were on their seats. So when they're flying, they, they got this ballistic seat they're sitting in. Yeah. They got little things come off on each side so you can't shoot them that way. And uh, they got vests, they got ballistic helmets. The door gunners are sitting on canvas seats no doors, wide open. I never could figure out that. It's like we were expendable. You know, it's like, well, the pilots, they're officers, right? Anyway, so you, you got to get that back and get him out. So I got him out, got a fire extinguisher. And, and then I noticed that nobody was getting the pilot out on the other side, which the door gunner should, my, you know, he's on the opposite right. side of me. Yeah. That was his job. So I ran around the other side, got that pilot out, and I looked, and my door gunner is, is a sloop. I mean, he's just laying on his gun. And there's just blood everywhere. Blood. Mm. So I look at behind him, and there's 17 exit holes. Now, if you've ever been in a helicopter, you know, door gutters sit shadow of each other. Mm-hmm. But between them, there's a transmission and, and all that stuff. And uh, I mean, you can't fire through to get out the other side. It's yeah. impossible. Right. You get a hit, right? For whatever reason, no exits, no 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 entry holes on my side of the helicopter where I got shot, but on his side, tracing my body, right with my body, there's exit holes, mm. and he's got seventeen wounds on him. Uh, and I'm go- and anyway, that was another big cut. They had to investigate that. They sent out people to investigate. That was weird. So I grabbed, I put him on my shoulder, and uh, my adrenaline was going pretty good, and uh, you know I. You know, I'm, I'm not a big man. I must have been about 150 pounds, and I got this guy, and he's about 150, 60 pounds on my back, and I'm running full speed, 100 yard dash, right? You know, I'm passing everybody up, and I'm wounded on top of that, right? Yeah. So a gunship comes in, and a few minutes later, and it takes the major, who's the commander, and it took my door gunner, who was wounded. And that's all the room they had. They left me and this pilot, and I'm wounded. Wow. I'm going, I go, hey, hey. They go, we got no more room. We got no more room. I go, what? What? You know, so so me and me and the pilot, we trudged back to the helicopter and I go, and I, and I saw these guys out there that weren't that far away, right? And I'm going, okay. I took my machine gun off the off the uh, the stand that it's on, you know, where you sit. And I had a, a belt that was solid tracers. I sat down at lunchtime. I, I make these. You know, because you go into an LZ, one looks like a lot of firepower, right? So instead of every fifth round being a tracer, I had solid tracers. And being on a helicopter, 
you got a hundred mile an hour wind because you're going forward speed, right? You got a blade going. It doesn't overheat. No problem. Well, I was never in the infantry, so I didn't realize how hot a machine gun barrel gets, mm-hmm. especially when you're going to fire it solid without a break, and especially when you're firing solid tracers, which are really heated up. So I got the thing because I've seen enough John Wayne movies growing up. I go, hey, I'm just going to take this. I'll put it on my hip. I'm going to go. I'm going to attack. I ain't going to wait for the gun. <laughs> I'm going to attack, right? And, my, and the pilot's got his 45 out, right? It was, it was before the, they, they went the other one, just the old 45, right. you know, the Colt, whatever it was. And I said, just cover my back. He's behind me right, with the gun. And, I'm, and I just start walking towards this group of guys, you know? And I'm firing away. I'm, I'm firing 750 rounds a minute, and I'm firing, oh, about a minute and a half, maybe less than two minutes. Uh-huh. It's it's almost all the rounds are gone, but all of a sudden I hear this click. And I look down the barrel going, it just drooped. Actually, was white hot. Wow. White hot, and it actually drooped. And of course, he can't fire it anymore. Right. Right? And then I'm going, well, I guess I got him mad. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, I, I was only teasing. Come on, you know, hey, Kimosabi. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so we we spent the rest of the uh, about eight hours waiting for these guys to come back uh, to get us uh, escape and evasion. And but we hung around. We had to hang around the helicopter so they could find us. But the enemy also knew that somebody had to come and get us. So. I don't think they came in to do anything to us because they wanted us, you know, to have somebody come and get us to have another target. That's my theory. And I'm sticking to it. I don't know. But anyway, so we finally get back. I get rescued. I get medical attention. And then they sling load the, the crashed helicopter back and sets it down at our company. And everybody comes to look at it. And they're looking at 17 holes coming out of one side. No holes entering my side. So a guy fires 18 rounds at me, one in my chest right in the heart, and the other 17 don't even make a scratch on my side. It just like went through me, through the wall, the helicopter, and it comes out the other side. Wow. And these guys, nobody can believe it because they're all going, well, wow. everybody's trying to think, well, maybe somebody fired up underneath, you know, right, right. You know, somehow the rounds... Uh, there was no way. There was no, no, no. They sent an investigation team out too. They just, they were trying to figure this whole thing out. So, yeah. So I thought, you know what? When you're protected like that, you're wearing a chest protector that you didn't have three days before. And the rounds go through you, around you. So, yeah. Events like that, that you go, no, somebody's looking after me. That's so, Reverend Bill, that's a really, really powerful story with a lot of different pieces to it. And, you know, subsequent to that, you went on and you've become a chaplain and you serve a lot of military in many different capacities and many different organizations. So was that event kind of the catalyst that led you into the chaplaincy? And if it is like, what was it that that event taught you about being a servant leader that made you want to go into being a chaplaincy that equipped you to being a chaplain? Well, you know, I, I came back from Vietnam and, uh, and of course, you know, the famous welcome that we all got that everybody yeah. talked about. I mean, people look at everybody and go, yeah, Vietnam, this is almost stereotype. It can't be real. You know, come on, people spit on you and all. The truth of the matter is, it was as bad as people think it was. It really was that bad. It was terrible. I, I lived in San Francisco Bay Area. I came, I came back in the summer of 1967 summer of love my god it was nothing for veterans i made a mistake of wearing my uniforms mm-hmm. chased away and taunted anyway i came back and when i got out of the military i had this soft place for my fellow veteran because you know i i was good you know but i watched people i watched they couldn't get jobs they did marriages were dissolving they're turning to alcohol they were turning to drugs yeah a lot of self-destructive stuff going on and so i started working before there was a term PTSD. I was just working with guys with battle uh, uh, battle wounds of that you can't see. Right. There was no word for it. There was all these World War II terms and stuff, you know, battle fatigue, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it was just there. There was two kinds of wounds. 
you know, battle wounds, flesh. But there, then there was these spiritual wounds that went much deeper. Yep. And uh, and that includes what I call moral injuries, mm-hmm. uh, where people had to make decisions that haunted them the rest of their life. You know, like they have to fire somebody uh, and kill somebody, and and then they find out the it's a fourteen year old kid, but the kid had a gun right. and hand grenades, and he's stacking you, but nobody wants to kill a kid right. or a woman. I mean, it's just it's not our ideal of an enemy that we should be fighting. So I started working in the 1960s, late 60s, 68, 69, 70s, on, on just working, staying out of organizations. I didn't belong in any organizations at the time. I didn't want to belong to the VFW, American Elite. I just, nobody was recruiting me, number one. <laughs> nobody wanted us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I started doing my own thing. I created a spiritual warrior ministries and uh, I got dog tags made and they say i am love on there and, uh, yeah. and i'm a spiritual warrior and all that but i got it and and people that are helping other veterans i give them these and i just here you're one of my chaplains go forth i only got three rules don't don't have any don't have any uh a dogma meet the people whatever religion they are serve them there you know give them words and language and things they can identify to help them sure and don't ask for money you know, if somebody wants to give you something great, but you don't ask. So it was one of these things. I got two Catholic priests that are doing this for me. I've got uh, a rabbi. I got a couple of Hindu. I got Hindus. I got I got a couple of Muslims. That's about all. I know. That's all I have on that. But I got Christian denominations all over the place, and, and a couple of Buddhists. And I tell people, you're there to serve the community. Whatever whatever you got to do to help them, yeah. you're the servant. Serve them. It's not about being, you know, I tell people, we're not here to be uh, given anything. We're here to give. We're not here to have somebody understand us. We're here to understand others. Yeah. We're here to, to give, not get, right? And uh, so that's kind of the philosophy. And so I have all these people loose this association around the world. You know, in England and Scotland, and then uh, I tried to get something going in Russia, and that failed. The Russian government didn't want anything to do with me or what I wanted to do. They tell me, what do you want to help these Afghan vets? And I, I go, well, they, they really had to, I really want to work. They need it. They don't need no help. They're all out on the street. They're a bunch of drunks and alcoholics and druggies, and mm. they're all, you know, they got no, we had no, I go, don't you see that as a problem? Yeah. <laughs> That was uh, over a decade uh, ago, and, and uh, you could tell which way the Russians have gone on right. this. These Kurt veterans out there fighting for the Russian army are going to be dumped just as bad and hard and, and terrible as the Afghan vets were. Uh, the soldiers are not treated well around the world, and that's almost every army. Russia's probably worse, but around the world, when you're when you're used and done with, Here's yesterday's news. Yeah. It's, it's, so that's kind of what I started doing. That motivated me. And so I, I couldn't find any organization that I totally 100% agreed with because every organization had a slant, a view, and a box. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you're a Catholic, you're going to try to convert people to Catholicism. And if you're, if you're a Lutheran or whatever, born again Christian, whatever you are, the ultimate goal is to, Turn them in your direction. Sure. I, my goal is turn you to God and to love. I'll let you choose. Wow. And uh, and I don't try to change anybody, which sets me apart from most ministers because they, what do you mean? You're not trying to convert anybody. But, you know, I'm there to help with their overall problems, you know, and how they choose, that's up to them. Yeah. So that makes me different in, 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 in my organization because other, other chaplaincies, they have a point of view. Right. And my point of view is love and service. End of story love and service. And so I will use somebody from all the different faiths. So if I have somebody of a faith that I can send a chaplain to that I can match them with, that's best. So if a guy's Catholic, I'll send him like in Florida, I got uh, Father Ron. I sent him to Father Ron. I mean, he's there. He could take care of him. Uh, and if it's up in, uh, in Wyoming, I got Father Jack up there, right? So, he, so, But they'll also take care of people that aren't Catholics as well. So right. I try to send them where they need to go. 
So when you talked about spiritual warrior before, can you explain a little bit about what that means to be a spiritual warrior and how you came up with that term? Yeah, well, first off, it's not just combat veterans. Okay. So I got people that never served. I call I call spiritual warriors. It's that greater battle. It's that battle of light and dark and uh, your soul and your heart and all these things. Because there's a lot of people been through some real tests and trials in their life. Right. And really, some women going through some major divorces and things and abuse. Other guys going through, you know, they've lost a wife recently. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got. Everybody's had a war and a series of battles, and so. I uh, I honor that. That's the gifts you were given. The gifts. How did you handle them? And if you're successful, meaning you come out and you're you're not a victim. Mm-hmm. You don't blame anybody. You accept everything that happens as it is, as it's supposed to be, and you look for the gifts. And the gifts are always about love and forgiveness. And that's the direction I try to move people into. That is so wonderful. And, you know, it. looking at your website, it seems like you also have done some literary work on this and a number of speaking engagements on this. So when you go and talk to people and even in your writings, when you're talking to people about this idea of a spiritual warrior, like what is the main message that you want to convey? And maybe to the people that are listening today, you know, maybe somebody has fallen away from their faith or they don't believe in God at all. What would you say to them? Like, hey, Reverend Bill, I get it. And I appreciate that you're helping people, but you don't understand the things that I've gone through and maybe the sins that I've committed. Well, maybe I've killed somebody or I've I've stolen, I've done drugs, this and that. What would you say to that kind of person? Well, just like I did, I was, as a a footnote, I was a voluntary chaplain at Folsom Prison in California on death row. They don't have death row anymore, but they still got these guys that have killed people. Yeah, And it's, it's it's the lifers. And, uh, and I try to tell these guys, you know, when you wake up, it's a new beginning. Mm. You went to bed one person, you wake up, you have an opportunity to be somebody else. I don't care if you've done all these terrible things. Start now. Yeah. Move forward. Grow, love, forgive. But the first place you have to forgive is yourself. Mm. And I found that especially guys in jail, uh, they, it's really obvious there's, there's no self-love. There's there's no self forgiveness. These guys are harder on themselves than yeah. God would be ever. Yeah. And I tell these guys, well, I can't forgive me. I go, God can, and you're saying you're better than God. You're better than God, so you can't forgive you. You yeah. expect better. Come on, you know. So that's the first thing I try to get people to love and forgive themselves, and then serve the greater self. They got to look at their brothers and their sisters out there as an extension of of, of them. And we're all made in God's image. Yes. So you, there's no chosen people. We're all chosen people. Yes. And I truly believe that no one's condemned to hell. Uh, I really believe that God the Father loves everybody. And uh, no father would ever send off a soul to burn in hell forever. And that separates me from a lot of ministers and preachers and stuff. And uh, I believe total, total forgiveness starting. And where do we learn forgiveness from? With God, right? The mm-hmm. divine. Well, if I can forgive, that's nothing to compare to what God can forgive. Yeah. So I tell people, hey, look, forgive yourself. You know, love yourself. Start there and you'll change the world. So we have about a minute left, Reverend Bill. And I, I just want to ask you this last thing. Like, you have had a lot of transformation in your life and some really incredible experiences, starting with your time in Vietnam. And so... What would you say is the most important thing that people can do? I mean, it, it feels like you've had a lot of blessings in your life. You've been able to pour into a lot of people. God has had his hand on you, on your life, giving you protection and healing and all those things. So what would be the most important thing that somebody can do to receive the blessings of God in their life when maybe they feel like, I don't deserve it? Get back to the basics. The basics is this, love. Love is the only religion. Everything else is man-made, I'm sorry. Yeah. Love is the only religion. And when you come into this world, nobody has to teach you how to love. Right? Absolutely. If you belong to religion, somebody's got to teach you all the dogma, all the rules, all the stuff. But love, it's the same in all languages, all cultures. Yeah. 
And you know it. You know real love. So I tell people, love your neighbor as you do yourself. Yes. That's the secret. 100%. You know, I... I got to say, it sounds a little bit cliche, but I love what you just said uh, on the logo for this program. I have John 13, 34, and it talks about love others as I have loved you. And you talk about forgiveness. I mean, that's what the whole thing of Jesus Christ is about. He came to give us forgiveness from our sins. So if he's going to love us so much that he's going to be willing to die to save all of mankind, past, present, and future for their sins, the least that we can do is to love other people the way that he has loved us. Such profound message. And I I am so thankful for just the opportunity to speak with you here today and your message of love and forgiveness. Very, very profound message for all listeners. Thank you so much, Reverend Bill, for spending just a few minutes with me here today. Well, obviously you discovered that uh, I'm more than a half hour interview, but uh, people want to go to our website and if they want to read my books, I got books all over Amazon and I got books in a bunch of different languages around the world as well. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Reverend Bill. Really appreciate your time. All right, listen, when we come back from the break, we're going to reflect on the lessons of servant leadership that we've heard from today's guest. So stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're interested in connecting with Dr. Paul McCullough or interested in being featured on the show, contact Jacob Media Partners via LinkedIn. Now, back to Serving Our Nation. And welcome back to Serving Our Nation. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Paul McCullough. And as we close out today's show, let's think about the very profound things that we've heard from today's guest, Reverend Bill McDonald. This gentleman had so many powerful things to say, but one of the things that really touched me was his story of the protection of the hand of God that was on his life. When you think about how many people died in Vietnam and just the tragedy that went on there, and then when you listen to his story about how God was able to protect his life with the ceramic vest that he was wearing. He was one of only two people that was given that vest to wear. And then all the rest of the bullet wounds went around him or through him or whatever you want to call it. But he was protected and he came out of that incident without a scratch. To me, that is 100% the hand of God. And it placed a calling on his life about faith. And so when I think about that in the larger context, what can we do as individuals? What can we do as aspiring servant leaders? How can we take our faith of the really inspiring moments where the hand of God has been present in our lives and use that to help and encourage other people? What story can you share with somebody today? Somebody that might be down on their luck, somebody that might feel like God isn't with them or God doesn't forgive them. What can you share about God's hand in your life to let people know that regardless of what you've done and regardless of who you are or what your story is, there is a God and that God loves you today, regardless of what your circumstances are. The second thing I thought was really powerful about Reverend Bill's story was just the message that he tries to convey in his ministry, the spiritual warrior ministry. And he said that they're not about dogma and they don't ask for money and they simply want to meet people where they're at. Now, listen, this can be true in any walk of life. You know, maybe you're a business leader and somebody comes in and they really want to do a good job for you, but maybe they're struggling with some things. Can you meet them where they're at? Maybe it's somebody in the faith or somebody in their community and they want to make a contribution to the fight. They want to get in and they want to be involved, but they might feel like 
well, you don't understand what I've done. And I'm a sinner and I've done this and I've done that and I'm not worthy. What can we do as individuals to love on that person? Because when you show a person true love and true compassion, it will change their life. And listen, I know that to be true beyond the shadow of a doubt because when I had an opportunity to deploy to Kuwait five years ago, my entire command was based on the idea of love, serve, and care. And it revolutionized the command climate from a place where people wanted to go home. From the day that I hit the ground and first took command, people were telling me that they wanted to go home and they had enough and they no longer wanted to be there. And I asked them to just give me a couple of weeks. And in those two weeks, I was able to change their perspective from I want to go home to I want to stay here in this environment for as long as you are here because I genuinely showed them love. And then when you couple that with forgiveness, what joy can come into a person's life when you offer them forgiveness? Maybe that's within your family. Maybe somebody did something and you feel wronged. Or maybe it's in the workplace and somebody did something that you didn't think was right. But can you give them forgiveness? Listen, I would say to you that when you harbor forgiveness in your heart and you hold a grudge against somebody, it is like consuming poison and expecting the other person to die. All it is is a self-destructive behavior. You're not hurting the other person at all. So I could not agree with Reverend Bill's message anymore. I mean, he had such a powerful message about love and service. And I think it was also really telling when he said that we are here to give, not get. And that there's certainly a strong reference to the Bible in there where it says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, I would say to you that that is a really great lesson for us to emulate. We're not here for people to come to us and wait on us hand and foot. It is our job, again, as ministers, as representatives of people that have been given very special gifts and blessings by God, that we need to go out and love and serve people in any way that we can. And I think the thing that Reverend Bill said that was really powerful was towards the end of his conversation. And he said, every single day, it was a new beginning. Start now. Think about how you can grow. Think about how you can love. Think about how you for can forgive. How you can be a better version of yourself. That is true in any walk of life. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do, what your story is. It doesn't matter how many times maybe you messed up or how many times maybe you've sinned or whatever it is. Tomorrow is a new day. And you can forgive and you can love, and you can reach out to maybe that family member that has wronged you, or maybe that employee that did something that was wrong, or maybe the teacher or the professor, whoever it is that did something against you, you can forgive. Maybe you have a spouse and you haven't connected with well over time. You can really show love. Don't wait for the other person to do something. Be the person, be the catalyst of love, because it can change your life it can change your relationships, and it can change the outcome of your entire course of your life. Well, listen, uh, each week I talk to you about this idea when you put good into the universe, good comes back to you. Well, I could not be more blessed. This morning I woke up, and after I had my prayer time and Bible reading time, and I just felt like I wanted to check my bank balance and it just so happened that there was two deposits in my bank account from the place where I work. So one was my bi-weekly salary and another one was a bonus. And I was just absolutely in awe about that. And I, I thought it was just incredible that God would even bless me like that. I had no idea that that was coming. I had no idea that that was even on somebody's radar and certainly not to the extent that I was blessed. And so what I'd say to you is when you go to your job, you're not working for an individual. I think that we could be serving ourselves wrong if we look at, oh, I'm working for this man or this woman. 
Scripture tells us that we have to do all things as though we're working for God. And when we have that perspective and we're doing, we're, we use the work of our hands to do work for God, you can really put your heart into it. And you can really give it everything you have because now you're doing it for God. Regardless of how a particular boss treats you or does or does not do things for you that you feel are appropriate. If you're working for God, your heart can always be in it. And you can give it 100% of all of your effort. And when you do that, just like what happened for me this morning, God will honor you for that. So going back to what I say to you each and every week, when you live this life of putting other people ahead of yourself, God won't notice that and he will honor that and he will bless you for it. And the story of Reverend Bill McDonald and how God has had a hand of protection on his life and he's now done this ministry of spiritual warriors and just preaching out the message of loving and serving others, you can do the same thing. And I would encourage you to think about that and make today the first day of the rest of your life where you start living that new life of love and service and forgiveness. Well, listen, next week, I am so excited about the next person that is coming on the show. It's a woman that's very, very special to me. It's my Aunt Sue, and Sue Fox Ruggiero, and she is a former insurance program manager for NEA, the National Education Association. And more importantly, she is a loving wife and caretaker for my Uncle Mike Ruggiero. And so she has a very, very powerful story to share about how she serves in her family. So please be sure to join in next week to hear what she has to say about servant leadership within a family. But for now, as you go about your week, no matter where you're at, always ask, how can I help? Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Walking around these walls I thought by now they fall but you have never felt me yet Ooh. Waiting for change to come Knowing the battle's won For you have never felt me yet Promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You never failed me yet. I know the night will come.
Still in your hands This is my car 